Well, this morning we're going to be returning to our study of 1 John. In particular, we're going to be picking up where we left off uh, two Sundays ago uh, in 1 John chapter 2 about not loving the world. Let's begin this morning with just a, a prayer together to ask for the Lord's help for this time. Our Lord, our God, we just want to praise and exalt you. Lord, you have rescued us. And Lord, for all those that have called upon your name, Lord, in true faith, Lord, you have redeemed us and you have given us worth that we are truly um, unworthy of. It's truly an unearned worth. And we just want to affirm Lord God, that you are a gracious God, a loving God, and a God who, who loves to save and is abounding in loving kindness. Lord God, you have given us your word to instruct us, to guide us, to help us to walk the narrow path, Lord, of righteousness in a dark world. So I just ask that you use your word in us this morning. Help me to make it clear as I ought to make it, and as well help us all to be attentive listeners and, Lord, diligent appliers of your word. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we ask this. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we want to return to the subject of not loving the world. It is a topic, I think, that is a theme that is pervasive throughout Scripture. Although, to find the exact phrase, do not love the world, you would probably struggle to find that, although closest parallel would be in James. Uh, where James talks about becoming a friend of the world makes yourself an enemy to God. But this is a pervasive theme throughout Scripture, as well as in the Old Testament, although, again, I would say the exact words aren't there, but the idea is there. Um, We we see this time and and time again in, in Scripture, I want to read to you this morning, just, just listen as I read. If you want, you can follow along. I'm going to be reading just to start with as a as by way of illustration of how pervasive the theme of loving the world is. I'm going to read a section from 1 Kings to you, chapter 8, um, just several verses, beginning at verse 57. So like I said, you can read along or just listen along. This is a passage of Scripture. We're inserting ourselves into history when Solomon is king. He has built a temple and he is consecrating that temple by a massive celebration of of glory to God. Massive numbers of animals are sacrificed in the tens of thousands. That's how much this means to Israel. That's how much the love of God means to Solomon. And we're going to jump right into one of his his prayers. At the end of of his prayers, he exhorts the nation of Israel in this way. So 1 Kings chapter 8, picking up at verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord, our God, day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and may cause and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no one else. 
Even there, Solomon gets it. He gets that God is great, and God intends to use Israel as a witness to the nations. You notice that at the end of his verse. Now, with that as as the background, listen to his words. Verse 61. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as as at this day. His exhortation to the nation of Israel was to to keep your heart wholly devoted, devoted to the Lord. At this time, it was clear to Solomon that the Lord tolerated no substitutes. The Lord tolerates no competitors. When it comes to loving God, it's all or nothing. There's no half-heartedness that's accepted before our, our God. Solomon got it. And he was exhorting the nation of Israel to that. But did Israel get it? Well, we know the sad history they did. But what about Solomon? The, the person that's spoken of in Scripture as the wisest man ever to live. Did he get it? Well, sadly, he didn't. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'm sorry, uh, 1 Kings 11 verse 4. This is one verse. Listen to the summary. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. And he adds this, as the heart of David his father had been. So the summary judgment of God, who knows everything, is that Solomon failed to keep the very thing that he was preaching. He was preaching be wholly devoted to the Lord. And he had every intent to do just that. He wasn't being hypocritical. He had every intent to do that when he was young. But when he got old, because he had made compromises and married many wives, these wives led him astray. And at the end of his life, he was not wholly devoted to the Lord. God's judgment But interesting, that verse compares Solomon as all other kings of Israel to which king? Not the first king, Saul, but to King David. It says, as Solomon was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, Now, that's a great summary statement for David, but nonetheless sad for him as a father. But let's think about that. How can God say that David had a, had a heart wholly devoted to him when we know full well that there were at times where David's heart was not fully devoted? Periods of time. For example, most inf- infamously, his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband. But there's, an, there's another case that comes to mind as well. And that's in 2 Samuel verse 24 when when David decided to number Israel, to number really the fighting men of Israel. And we, we find that in 2 Samuel 24. You can just jot that down. We've got to take time to go and read that now. But in 2 Samuel verse 24, Samuel, I mean, uh, David says, he, he commands uh, his uh, commander to go and number Israel. Now, I think um, one of the things that's going on here is that numbering in and of itself wasn't necessarily sinful. 
What are we talking about numbering? We're talking about taking a census. So taking a census in and of itself, it's not sinful. It's been done before. In fact, it was done just prior to this for the sake of dividing troops into three different parts, assigning a leader to each part so that they could go and restore David's kingdom because it was just before the time when um, uh, David's son, uh, Absalom, revolted and led this revolt and, and David fled. So he numbered those who were with him, divided them in three parts, and his strategy was that those three different parts would attack from three different ways, and as we know, they were successful. That was not sinful for David to number in that circumstance. But there was a time when, there, when it was. And the essence of it is that David was numbering for an entirely different reason in the first example I gave than in the second example. I, I do want to read part of Second Samuel because I think it's impor- important So the king tells Joab, the commander of the army who is with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. He's doing this for a whole other reason. David is not under attack. He's not developing a strategy for the defense of his nation. Some commentators suppose that David is trying to gain an idea of how strong his nation is to decide whether or not he will attack another nation in order to expand his kingdom, perhaps into areas that the Lord has not given him. We do not know all the ways, although we do know this was a judgment from the Lord. This, this lack of wisdom was in, in, in a measure the Lord's doing in, in his life. But listen to what happened. When David tells Joab to do something, Joab is supposed to do what? Not question things. He's just supposed to go do it. He's not the advisor to the king He's the commander. I mean, he would, he would advise the king on military stuff. But on decisions, he's just supposed to do what the king says. But Abner, I mean, sorry, Job knows the problem with David's numbering in this circumstance. Because in, that, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3, he says, But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a, a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? In other words, he's trying to be diplomatic and tell David, you're wrong. He's not saying he won't do it because that would defy the king and and his job was to be submissive to the king and support the king. But this is an example of how when there is temptation, God provides a way of escape. And if you don't look for it, temptation will overcome you and you will sin. Joab's polite rebuke was the way of escape that David should have taken. It should have awoken his senses and said, Ah, you're right. It's foolishness for me to, uh, to number the... And, and not only foolishness, it's sinful for me to number them. Number the people now. But nevertheless... We're told that the king's word prevailed against Job and against the commanders of the army. None of them wanted to do this. I should have told David something. But they went and numbered, it numbered um, Israel. And at the end of this, so it took them seven months to number them. And then we're told in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24, 
that now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So although we're not given the details of why it was so sinful for David to number the people in this particular circumstance, it most likely had to do with David's pride that numbering the people would make him feel like more of a king, a more powerful king. The more people he had, the more warriors he had, the stronger his army was, or so he thought. At this particular stage of his life, he was, I would propose to you, loving the world. He was seeking after that pride that that kings and those that are in authority are so prone to. And his trust was not in the Lord at this particular moment, but in the strength of his people, the number and and the strength of his army. Why do I bring all this up? To say that, that the issue here is loving God. Right? From the very beginning of the, of the law laid down, it's, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, with everything you have. God doesn't compartmentalize and say, love me here, love me here. He's just saying, love me totally with everything you have. Leave nothing in reserve. Uh, to use an, an illustration from marriage, it's, it's, God is saying to his beloved, love me wholly, be done with your other lovers. Be done with them. And scripture, time and time again, particularly in the prophets, uses unfaithful, marital unfaithfulness and adultery as a picture of spiritual idolatry, which I would propose to you as a picture of what it means when we love the world. And, and David, as someone who was saved, right, in a, in a different way, because he didn't have the Holy Spirit residing within him, within him like New Testament believers do, but nonetheless, he is a picture for us of how someone whose heart is wholly devoted to the Lord can be temporarily led astray into sin. And this is something that we are all very prone to do. Now, with that as the introduction and background, turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, if we, we lay out what I propose to you is, is guiding truths that we need to um, embrace to help us love God wholeheartedly and not love the world. Let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now we started into last time looking at at four truths, four guiding truths that we need to embrace to help us to to love God. And and the first one of these is that you must diligently guard yourself from loving the world. And I showed this to you from um, verse 15, the first part. There's that command, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now I want to explore a little bit more clearly, I think, um, what, what 
it means when John is commanding, do not love the world. Now remember in verses 12 to 14, he's speaking to, he he lists the uh, little children, the young men, and the fathers. And we talked about how how the phrase little children was a reference to believers of any age, how young men were those who were younger in the faith, and fathers was a reference to the more spiritually mature. But in essence, verses 12 to 14 provide assurance of salvation to those that John is writing to. That's, that's his purpose. He's saying all these tests of faith, John has been very sharp, very, very abrupt in these tests of faith. And through the Holy Spirit, he has the wisdom to know that at this point he needs to assure his readers that he is not trying to beat them down and cause them doubts about their salvation. He is is giving these hard-hitting questions and these proclamations of truth as a way for them to build assurance of their salvation and to help understand why it is that there are those who look like they're saved but all of a sudden just walk away, maybe after years, maybe after decades of of apparent faithfulness, they just deny the Lord and totally walk away. How, How do we understand that? So he's giving them the framework to understand that. But to the very same people that he just built up, their assurance of salvation, verses 12 to 14, hits the the command or prohibition of verse 15. It's the same group of people. There's no transition. There's there's nothing like, well, well, this is for you guys, and now this is for all those that have left. No, to the same group of people. He just built up their assurance of salvation. And he says this in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. What's going on? Now, John commands them not to love the world or the things in in the world. And he does so with the authority given to him as an apostle. And John commands that his readers not love the world. And, And John writes this prohibition in a way that indicates the recipients were already loving the world. That's something I want to develop just a little bit more in detail this morning. John is writing this in a way that indicates that the recipients, not necessarily, he's not saying 100% of them, but enough of them that, he, that he's commanding them in a plural sense to stop loving the world and the things in the world. Now, now, why do I say that? Because if you just read it, do not love the world or the things in the world, you just read it in English, it just seems to be a command. It's, it doesn't really help you understand whether it's something ongoing or, or not. Well, the reason that I can say with confidence that that the recipients had already started loving the world is the way that John frames his statement in the Greek. And there are some things that just cannot be translated very well into English. This is one of them. So we know that here, that that John used a Greek, um, the negative command here is given in a present tense. Now, present is that is the idea of something ongoing right now. It doesn't have to be continuous. It's just going on right now. It could be something that starts and stops, something that's called iterative. Um, it, it, it just is on, it, at this point, it is something that is going on. And when he writes that, it, it's very important to note that it is in that Greek the kind of the negative prohibition is given in the present tense. And, and Thayer's English 
Greek English lexicon tells us that a prohibition is given with the present imperative, generally when one is bidden to cease from something already begun or repeated or continued. It's not saying it's continuous action. It's just saying it's something that's ongoing. Dana and Mantley's uh, Emmanuel Grammar of Greek New Testament explains this a little further. They say this, The present tense in any of its moods means linear or durative action, whereas the aorist tense in any of its moods means the converse of linear or durative action. In other words, it means punctiliar, that is a point, uh, or summary action. Thus, a prohibition, such as we have in John 2.15, expressed with the present tense, generally demands the cessation of, of some act that is already in progress. A prohibition expressed in the aorist tense is generally a warning of exhortation against doing a thing not already begun, unquote. So, I, you know, I don't usually go into the Greek because I understand that you haven't had an opportunity to study the Greek but I want you to know that that's what's going on in the Greek. John is giving a present tense prohibition. In other words, he's telling them to stop doing what they're doing. And there are are other examples of this in Scripture, some of them quite clear, um, even from John himself. So if you would, just keep your place in 1 John. I want you to turn to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, it takes us all the way back in the life of Jesus to when he went to Jerusalem to uh, the, the first Passover and was cleansing out the temple. So pick up at verse, at verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, if you read another version, for example, the ESV, the word stop is missing. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, which inserts stop. What's going on there? Why would one Bible have stop and the other one doesn't? Well, the reason is because the word stop isn't in it's not in Greek. What the word that's going on there, that's a present tense prohibition. What Jesus is saying there is, is really cease, um, he's pro, prohibit, sorry, prohibiting them from making their father's house a place of business. But he's doing so with that present tense prohibition. And so because of the context, because the context tells us clearly that these money changes were making the house a place of business, it was already ongoing. So the translators of the New American Standard Bible want to help you get that, want to help you see that. So they put the word stop in there. Clearly it was already going on, but it's the same tense. It's that present tense Greek uh, prohibition. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Another place where John uses that, again, I'll take you just to a clear example. There are debatable examples, but another clear example is listed for us in Revelation chapter 5. So you can turn there and look with me or listen along. Romans chapter 5. 
beginning of verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So very clearly from the context, he's weeping. He's mourning. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And again, the New American Standard Bible translators caught the significance of the present tense imperative clearly indicated by the context that he's weeping. So rather than just prohibit weeping as in a, in a sense that don't start weeping, they're, they're actually saying, stop weeping. This elder is saying, stop weeping to John because he's going to point him to the lamb who was worthy to open that book and is worthy to open that book. So if we go back to 1 John chapter 2, Verse 15, why didn't the, the, the translators of the, of the New American Standard Bible put stop? If, they, if, if it's there, why didn't they put that? Why didn't they say stop loving the world instead of do not love the world? And the reason is because the context doesn't really give us any clear indication. Like John doesn't tell us um, in, in any way what the recipients were actually doing to love the world. But we must understand that in 1 John, he is very abrupt. He uses a minimal amount of words to, to, to bring about a maximum presentation of truth. And so he doesn't get into the details of whatever it was that they were struggling with. Nonetheless, it is still valid to say that that, that is essentially what he's saying. He's saying, stop loving the world. Stop. Now, to be clear... He's, he's not saying that they're loving the world in a continuous sense. But what he is saying is there is an ongoing pattern of loving the world that is repetitive that must be broken. So these believers to whom John wrote were in some sense loving the world in some habitual or iterative, iterative fashion. But let's just say for a moment you're reading your English Bible and you didn't, you didn't know all that I just told you. Let's just, just say for a moment you didn't know all that. What could you discern from, the, from just reading your English Bible? Just paying attention to the details. Well, first you would note that John is commanding his recipients not to love the world or the things in the world. It, it's a command. It's very clear. It's not debated in any commentary. It's, it's a command. Now, if you're a careful thinker, you would ask yourself, why does God command us not to love the world? Why does, why does John command Christians not to love the world or the things in the world? Since there's nothing explicit in the text that really tells us for the moment uh, why John wrote this, one thing you could do is use the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture to guide you to a conclusion. What do I mean by that? The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture tells us that every word of God is written there with intent and purpose. There's no careless word, no extra words, no fluff words that you could skip over. So everything, every jot and tittle, and by that Jesus meant 
every little stroke of the pen, from the smallest little accent to the smallest letter. It's all there by the Holy Spirit. So since there's nothing frivolous, the command is here for a reason. It's not just for the world. That wouldn't even make sense. Do not love the world or the things in the world if you're in the world. So the doctrine of inspiration tells us that there's something there for us. And if we turn to other passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, we'll see that, that even this passage, that in all passages, are given for our instruction, our reproof, our correction, and for our training in righteousness. So too, this passage is given for that purpose. So here's where I'm going with this. Even... Even if you didn't know what was going on in the Greek, you could look at the Bible and say, this is a command. This is a command given by the Holy Spirit through the pen of John to these recipients, but included as a holy writ of Scripture, so therefore applicable to me as a New Testament believer in Christ. Why is the Lord commanding me not to love the world? And the answer is this, because God knows the weaknesses of our heart. He knows that we are tempted by the very things that he is warning us about. The Holy Spirit inspired the command of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, to not love the world or the things in the world, because we are already or will soon be tempted to love the world and the things in the world. It's a, it's a, it's a logical flow of why God gave the command. If we weren't going to be tempted by it as believers if it wasn't going to be an allurement to us as a believers, if it's not a danger to us as believers, the Lord would not have put it in his scriptures. He wouldn't have needed to. That would have been something you tell the world that they're idolaters. You tell the world that, that they're rebelling against God. But, but this message is for those within the church, those whom John has just affirmed the love of the Father and that they've been forgiven and they've overcome the evil one. All those affirmations are given in verses 12 to 14. Beloved, if we deny the allure of the world and the things of the world, we put ourselves in a very precarious position. The Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Meaning at the moment when you think you're not susceptible at all, you just think, ah, that's, that's not a concern for me. I don't need to be on guard against that. Watch out, is what Scripture says. Why? It's true that when we are not on guard, we are easily attacked. Right? Every army in the world knows that. So why am I spending so much time on emphasizing the Christian's vulnerability to loving the world? And it is because of this. I want to help you to be prepared for the battle that you face every single day. I want you to have a love that is pure and an undefiled, a heart that's wholly devoted to the Lord your God. And if you, if you deny your vulnerability to loving the world or the things in the world, if we say that, well, Christians aren't prone to that because, well, we have the Holy Spirit, we've been regenerated, I'll get to those things in a moment, those things are true, but if we, if we say that we're not prone to loving the world, we are in very much danger of falling into the trap of loving the world. We, 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 don't, even, we don't even understand what, what God wants us to understand. 
God calls his people to live with a wartime mentality during this phase of our lives. There will be peace. There will be glory when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom and causes all his enemies to be a footstool at his feet. But that time is not now. We live in a time of great spiritual warfare. And we must always be on guard against the the subtleties in which our own hearts find allurement in the things of the world. So, beloved, the first guiding truth that we must embrace to help us love the Lord our God and not love the world is is that you must diligently guard yourself from loving the world. It's, It's similar to what the Proverbs call guarding the heart. Be vigilant. Guard your heart. The second, which we covered last week, and I'm just going to quickly review that, is that you must wholeheartedly accept that the love of the world does not coexist with the love of the Father. We've kind of touched on this through the first part of of my message this morning and and even last uh, message last time. But just understand what John is saying. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When he's saying this, when anyone loves the world, he's using the present tense, and he's saying if anyone is just continues in this, if you can just continue to love the world unbroken by repentance, then the love of the Father is not even in you. Not at all. It's not that you were once saved and you lost your salvation. It, he's saying here the love of the Father is not in him, period. Not was in him, it's not. Never has been. It's not there. And so we, we hold this tension of those who want to love the Lord our God wholeheartedly with all of our heart, yet know at the same time we struggle with this allurement and sometimes fall prey to allurements of this world and sin against Him. For us, our lives need to be filled with repentance in those areas, turning away from those sins and following the Lord in obedience. What we need to see is that we must wholeheartedly accept that the love of the world can't coexist with the love of God. It, it just can't. It's like uh, similar. It's a, it's a f- kind of a uh, implication of what John tells us that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. The love of the world is darkness. So if we're going to know God and fellowship with God, we can't have any of that darkness uh, within us. We can't be celebrating the darkness while at the same time having fellowship with God. That, that can't be the pattern. If the pattern of your life is that you love the world, then you don't love God. The, the love of God doesn't exist in you. So this, this truth helps us to understand why it's so important that we not love the world. This, this um, implication for us in verse 15 tells us one of the reasons why it's so important that we not love the world, and it, and it forms another one of John's tests of uh, true faith. So, the, these guiding truths that we've looked at, for, first of all, uh, that you must embrace uh, are that to, to, love not, to love God more, sorry, to love God more and to not love the world is that we diligently guard our hearts. We, we diligently guard ourselves from loving the world. And, and the second is to realize that uh, the love of the world does not coexist with the Father. And I want us to look now, in the time we have left, to, to the third and fourth truths. The third one is that you must wisely understand the origin of the world. Wisely understand the origin of the world and the things of the world and what that comprises helps us 
to understand the importance of not loving the world. If you just see loving the world as some kind of benign thing that, that's not very damaging, we set ourselves up for much trouble. So the third guiding truth that we must embrace to help us love God and not love the world is to wisely, wisely understand the origin of the world. We see this in verse 16. I'm going to read the first part of the verse and the last part, and then we're going to fill it in in a moment. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's, that's the clear statement that he's making in verse 16. The things of the world, uh, everything that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. There's that contrast going on here. So the Father is the creator. He's the one that created our universe, our creation, our bodies. He's the one who gave us life. So he is the author of that good. He is not the author of the things in the world. Remember, by the term world here, we're not talking about creation. We are talking about that system which is in rebellion to God. That, that organized system uh, by sinful man that is really orchestrated by the evil one, Satan. So there's this contrast. The things of the world that we're called not to love, they're not from the Father at all. They're from the world. I mean, they're from that system. In part, they are from Satan. Right? Many, many thoughts, many struggles, and we'll deal with some of these lust in a moment. These things originate ultimately from Satan, but they also, in conjunction with that, originate from our heart. And we know not when we struggle with these lusts, we often know not, is this something from Satan or is it something from the ugly recess, the cesspools of my own heart? We cannot blame Satan, but we are foolish to disregard Satan's activity in uh, tempt, helping to tempt us in these things. But the main thing I wanted to point out initially is that the things in the world, and John's going to enumerate them in a minute, these things are not from the Father. They are from the world. So keep in mind that the things of the world, John, by the, using the term the things of the world, he's not at all meaning like physical objects. He's not, his, his focus isn't like e elaborate homes or fancy cars or fancy clothes. These aren't primarily, these aren't John's primary targets. He's not really worried about where you live and what you drive and what you wear. The physical things are just they're, they're value neutral. In and of themselves, they can be used for good, they can be used for evil. All of those things. That's why I say they're value neutral. They're objects, they're inanimate objects. In and of themselves, they, they're nothing. They're just neutral. It's what we do with them. When John speaks of the things of the world, he is taking aim at the heart. It goes back to that idea of being wholly devoted to Lord our God. He is taking aim at the very things that pull our devotion away from God. And he does so by using three summary terms. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And we're going we're gonna to look at each one of these terms. First of all, the lust of the flesh. Now the word lust is, is from the Greek word epithumia, which, which can be translated a longing for, a strong desire for. And there are a few examples in the New Testament where this is used in a positive sense, that the strong desire is a good desire. But 
the predominant use of this word in the New Testament is negative, where that strong desire is a sinful desire, and hence why the translators often will translate it as lust. Lust, in this case, he, he mentions lust of the flesh as the first thing. Now, the word flesh, as used in this context, does not refer to, to human flesh or to the human body. Right? God created human flesh. God created human body. These things are good. He declares so in the beginning. Paul's, I mean, John is not referring to the flesh in any way. So John uses the word flesh here in a similar way to how Paul uses uh, the word flesh, in, in, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians 5.17 tells us, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So there's this great battle, this great warfare going on between the flesh and the spirit. And when we hear, when we hear the term, the, the lust of the flesh, we might think that this refers to sensual desires like pornography, sexual immorality, and things like that. And if you think this, you're right. It does refer to those things. But what I want to point out is that it doesn't just refer to those things. In our minds, we kind of like go to the gross sins of our society, things even sometimes, unfortunately, Christians are guilty of pursuing. We, we run to the, the gross ones, and it does include, lust of the flesh does include pornography. It does include sexual immorality and adultery. But it should not be limited to that. The lust of the flesh is a, is a term that it, it can be thought of generically to refer to all things that call our hearts away from our Lord, our God. It, 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 can, be, uh, it can be used in a generic way to include even the subtle sins. The, the sins that uh, Jerry, Jerry Bridges calls, quote-unquote, respectable sins. In other words, they're not respectable from the Lord's perspective, but sometimes as Christians, we just don't pay much attention to these sins. Dr. Robert Thomas explains that the term flesh in this context refers to the lower aspect of sinful human nature, which is sensual and corrupted by sin. The word speaks of the outlook oriented towards self, that which pursues its own ends. It's, it's a desire which pursues its own ends, and that could be in some of the, what we call the gross sins of sexual immorality or adultery, or it could be in some of the more quote-unquote refined sins that we struggle with on our daily life, like gossip or pride. Bible, uh, sorry, Expositor's Bible Commentary explains that the flesh not only becomes uh, sorry, not only becomes the basis for rebellion against God and for despising His law, but it also connotes all that is materialistic, egocentric, exploitative, and selfish. It is the root of racism, sexism, love of injustice, despising the poor, neglecting the weak and helpless, and every unrighteous practice, unquote. So more than one Bible commentator thought that this first term, the lust of flesh, is, is like an umbrella term. It's a generic term that, that describes and encapsulates the next two terms as well that we'll look at. So this whole idea of what is the lust of the flesh, it's that idea of those, those desires 
which drive us, that cause us to do things that violate the will of God. We pursue those um, like, uh, like a spouse would pursue, pursue lovers outside of the, of the marriage. That's how God views these things. Now, John moves on from the lust of the flesh to the lust of the eyes. It's again the same idea, the same desire of the eyes. Seeing something you don't have and wanting it badly. Now again, this really points out the whole idea of, of pornography, immorality, sexual immorality. Uh, Jesus points that out in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. It says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her. But again, that's not the only thing that's going on here. You know, God made the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be pleasing to sight. And that was good. God declared that everything he made was good. But through Satan's temptation, Eve now looked upon something that God created for good and it became evil. She thought it was good. And she took and she ate. And and we know that she fell to that temptation. Scripture tells us that. But keep in mind that we don't, that when the scripture talks about the lust of the eyes, you can be totally blind and still have this problem. It isn't necessarily talking about your physical eyes. It's you're seeing something and you want it so badly, you are willing to sin to get it. Right? It's at that point that we are guilty of the lust of the, lust of the eyes. And it can be seen with the mind as well. Now keep in mind that the lust of the eyes doesn't have to be sexual in nature. It could be seeing your neighbor get a new car and now you really want a car. It's like keeping up with the Joneses idea. But it might not even be a physical object. It might just be status. Oftentimes the church is guilty of the the lust of the eyes because they want respect. Have you ever dealt with that? Where you want the respect of your colleagues. It's one of the things that causes us to shy away and be ashamed of the gospel because we want to be respected. We know if we boldly proclaim the gospel, well, we're going to look like a fool because it is the gospel is foolishness to the world. It just is. But when we... I'm not talking about being eloquent and choosing wise moments to say something. I'm just... What I'm, what I'm cautioning is that there are times when we are silent for this reason right here because we want respect. We want the respect of our coworkers more than we want the respect of God. Don't you see how those two loves, they can't exist. Either we want the respect of God and we live out of that worldview or we want the respect of our coworkers and we live out of that worldview. We can't live out of both. Scripture says that, that we can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other or love the other and hate the first. It's, it's just not possible. So this lust of the eyes goes very deeply to some of the things that we struggle with on a daily basis on on how we do or why we do what we do. But John even builds on that. He says there's this lust of the eyes, but then there is the, um, the whole idea of the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life. This one is a little harder to, to describe, but I would describe it this way. When it's talking in, in, there, in verse 16, he says, the boastful pride of life. This 
involves boasting, but what it, what it entails is, I think, the idea that you don't need God. The boastful pride of life, it's the person because of power, authority, or financial independence. Financial, uh, being a good financial planner is a good thing. That's wise. Scripture commends it. But getting to the place where you think, ah, I have enough. I don't need God. You know, when you, sometimes the temptation when you have plenty financially is that you don't pray to God to supply anything as you think you're doing it. So there's the temptation to reach a stage where we don't need God. This is manifested sometimes in our lives through prayerlessness. Do you go through days where you don't pray? Or how about a week? Where you, where you spend no time really in prayer other than 30 seconds before you eat your meal or something like that. We express pride, the pride of life, when we don't pray and ask God to, to guide us and, and help us through our day. Believers, these, these areas, this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are are given to us for us to analyze and think through our lives. These are areas where we are very prone. Our hearts are very prone in these areas. And if we will guard our hearts, then we will love God more and more. We'll be growing in our love for Him and growing in, in the, our, our wholehearted devotion to Him. I mentioned to you before passages that I think explain this differently. We won't take time to go there, but I want to reference them. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. We, we read that last time, and so I won't take time to read that this time. But a passage that I do want to go to, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and I'll just pick up at verse 16. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see? Very parallel to the idea that we're talking about here. John says, if you love the world in a continuing ongoing sense, the love of the Father is not in you. Paul says, he just uses different language, it, you, you who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the same concept. So, both are calling us to a life where we are fighting uh, that spiritual battle to honor the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now understand, beloved, that scripture very confidently teaches the security of the believer. There's just so many passages of scripture that teach that. But if you only focus on that, right, 
then you, you, your theology becomes distorted and you start, you, you start not caring how you live. You become careless in your life and your sin becomes, your, your life becomes filled with these sins uh, of the flesh. The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Some of the things mentioned specifically by Paul but in Galatians 5, but notice he says things like these. So he's not drawing an exhaustive list. The heart is uh, very deceitful. And the heart is wicked and can invent all sorts of new ways to rebel against God. But understand that your security in, in the Lord should never cause you or justify sin in your life. If you reach that place, you're in a very dangerous place and you may not even be saved. The Lord has to give you no confidence if you're pursuing those things. And you know, beloved, you who are saved, you know that when you do sin... It, it does at times rattle your assurance of salvation. And, and so the Lord wants you to look to him. Remember what I, what I read about, about David when he was numbering, um, the, uh, numbering the nation of Israel, how the Lord provided a way of escape. There was a way of escape for David when he looked initially at Bathsheba. And there's a way of escape for each one of us for these lusts. It, it is not, we're, we, it's not just because we're sinners doesn't mean it's fatalistic that we just sin. The Lord wants us to fight these, and he wants us to call out to him for help, and we won't do that if we're not on guard and aware of what's going on in our lives and the things that we are tempted by. So, beloved, the, the three guiding truths we've looked at thus far, I'll hit the fourth one, and then we'll be done. First three, you must diligently guard yourself from loving the world. You must wholeheartedly accept that the love of the world does not coexist with the love of the Father. And you must wisely understand the origin of the world. Now let's look at the fourth. You must perceptively look at the future of the world. Right? So this is, this is what John's calling us to in verse, um, in verse 17. Where he says, The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know, Satan doesn't want you to look at the long-term view. When you are tempted with pleasure, you don't want to look at the long-term view. You just say, oh, I want to have it now. Right? So it's that idea of like you see something really good, like, I don't know, some, just like a, this big, huge bar of dark chocolate. For me, that, you know, that just is really tempting. And if I eat a little bit, not a big deal. But what if I just keep consuming that and keep consuming that? It's going to make me sick. I don't see the future if I keep eating this huge, big, massive chocolate bar all at one time. It, well, Satan kind of works the same way, and our, and our own flesh cooperates with this. We don't want to look at the long term. I mean, which, which man or woman thinks about the long term when they, before they commit adultery? Yeah, this is, this is going to destroy my marriage. I'm going to embarrass my children, and I'm going to make a mockery of the name of Christ. Yeah, let's go do that. No, they're doing what? They don't think about those future things. They just think about the here and the now. So John is saying, think about the future. The world is passing away. These things that are allurements to us right now are passing away. They're soon going to be gone, we're going to be totally gone. God's going to judge them and do away with them. They're, they're futile. There's no future. And those who pursue them, as John says, 
they don't even have the love of the Father. If, that's, if, they, if, the, if the love of the world and its lust characterizes your life, then you are not saved. The good news is, the Lord saves everyone who calls upon His name. So if you realize that that's you today, that the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life characterizes your life, the Lord wants you to call out in faith to Him today. That today would be the day of salvation. Satan loves procrastination. He'll say, ah, time to do this later. No. If the Lord is convicting you today of lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, these deeds of the flesh, God wants you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And beloved, if you are already in Christ, know that it is the good shepherd who guards you and keeps you and protects you and will never let you stumble in an eternal way. He will care for you. He is the one who will give you life forever. Notice that, the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, John's not teaching there a work salvation. He's not saying only those who do this, this, and this, do all the will of God, are going to be saved. What he's saying is that those who are saved are actually going to demonstrate that salvation in their life, doing the will of God. Again, not in a perfect sense. Even the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul weren't perfect. They were godly, they were righteous, but not perfect. So the, the person of faith is a person who seeks to obey God. That is the person that will have eternal life. The one who does the will of God lives forever. And again, that, that is based on what He does in our lives. Beloved, there's just so many ways our lives where we are tempted by the things of the world or these these uh, lust of the flesh. Beloved, remember that we must embrace the truths to diligently guard ourselves from loving the world, to wholeheartedly accept that the love of the world does not coexist with the Father, that we need to wisely understand the origin of the world and also look to the future, that we must perceptively look at the future of the world and its lust, that they're just not going to be here. By seeing these truths and embracing them, we will guard ourselves from uh, the love of the world and from the love of the things of the world. This, just in summary fashion, it's, it's a pretty amazing text that we've looked at here, very applicable to our daily lives. Remember that the love of the world comes from the world and the world passes away. It's kind of like a parallel thought. The love of the world comes from the world, the world is passing away. The love of the Father comes from the Father and the one who obeys God remains forever. So the Father generates our love for Him, which causes us to obey Him and to remain forever, to have that everlasting life. Beloved, God wants you to honor and glorify Him by having a wholehearted devotion to Him. And, it, and it's really good news. When we get there in 1 John, you're going to really be uh, excited. But there's a passage in 1 John that says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. No one challenges the wholehearted devotion of Jesus Christ to the Father. And while we battle now, we will not always battle because of the victory that Christ has given us through faith and through the victory of the cross. So take heart and look to, look to Him 
who will guide you and protect you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, we just want to rejoice in you as our Savior, as the good shepherd who shepherds us as your sheep. Lord God, we want to confess to you that we are so prone to these lusts. We're so prone to live our lives as if you don't even exist. Lord, there are times in our lives where an outsider or our coworkers can't tell any difference between how we live and how our unredeemed coworkers live. And we just confess these things to you as sin. We confess to you that that's not how we want to live our lives because of your grace in our lives, because of your love which has been poured out upon our hearts, Lord God, through faith. We want to love you with a wholehearted devotion. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would please help us to do that. Strengthen us through your spirit. Enlighten our minds. Open our eyes to the, to the areas of our lives where maybe today we don't even see how we're loving the world or the things in the world. Open our eyes, Lord. Search our hearts that we would become people wholly devoted to you. That we would be people who are holy because you are holy. For your glory and honor, Lord God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.